0: Boa, galera. Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The recording you just heard of the call to prayer and Anastasia sung by monks at the Greek Orthodox Monastery of St. George of Ahuzeba in the Judean Desert east of Jerusalem was made by Kim Haynes eitzen professor of religious studies at Cornell University. She's also the author of Sonorous Desert, what deep listening taught early Christian monks and what it can teach us. It's a new study of early monastic literature accompanied by field recordings made in deserts across the Middle East and the American Southwest. Haynes Eitzen speaks with our associate editor, Griffin Olenek, on this episode of the Common Real Podcast. Hey, Griffin, it's good to see you. Hey, Dominic, glad to be here. So you got to speak with Kim haynes eitzen and I wanted you to tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, so her project is a pretty unique one. She argues that because ancient monasticism arose in a largely oral and aural culture, as opposed to a literary one, our understanding of the phenomenon of monasticism really depends on us taking sound seriously. So, for the ancient Christian monks who sought God in the deserts of Egypt and the Holy Land, every sound tended to contain a kind of symbolic or spiritual significance. So for example, like crowing ravens, that could indicate food. Or rushing waters could indicate future relief from thirst and things like that. Haines herself spent many years in the field capturing recordings of different sonic landscapes and pondering their significance. And we just heard one at the beginning of this episode, and we'll hear another one later on. So what interested me, and what I hope will interest our listeners, is how this ancient monastic attentiveness to sound can help us slow ourselves down and filter out some of the noise of modern life. It's kind of a paradox, though, because as Haynes-Eitzen points out, and as her field recordings reveal, there's no noisier place than a supposedly silent desert. All right, this sounds great. So let's take a listen, Griffin. Thanks. Kim Haynes-Eitzen, welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and look forward to our conversation. Tell us about
1: how the idea for the Sonorous Desert Project came about.
2: Yes, I was interested for a long time in the implications of limited literacy in early Christianity and how we understand a young religious community that is primarily oral, and how stories circulate. We know, of course, texts were circulating, but most people heard these texts. They didn't read them for themselves. So, in a sense, this is a natural progression from that kind of research, because if we accept the idea, and not just the idea, but also the evidence for limited literacy in antiquity, then it means we have to take listening much more seriously.
1: Could you say more about? what you mean by limited literacy and how that functioned in early Christianity?
2: Yes. So some historians of the ancient Roman Empire have suggested that no more than 10% of the population could read and write. And in the ancient Greek world, these two skills in some ways were separated. Writing required more skill. But what we can tell about the earliest stages of What will become Christianity? We are looking at a culture and a context where very few people would actually hold a text and read a text the way we think about doing that. Mm. And so I think that does have implications for how we think about story, memorization, poetry, the poetic forms. It also raises a lot of questions about who did read, who Mm. did write. And what were their positions in society that enabled that level of education? so in in a sense, that was the research, professional, academic side of my interest in sound. Although when I began the project, I really didn't think I was wasn't, of course, when you start a research project, you don't always know exactly where it's going to go. That's part of the enjoyment of research, is discovering what you didn't expect. And I thought, well, I would like to really understand how early Christians, and it became more refined and focused onto monastic Christians, monks, the early monastic movement, how they listened to their environment, in their environment. In philosophical circles, there was by the time Christianity emerged, there was a long-standing idea about. How do you cultivate philosophical concentration? What mm. do you do about distraction? We have texts written by both Greek and Latin philosophers, some of whom were very explicit about their trying to write in their writing studio, writing space, and the noise from the street was so mm. loud and so distracting. In some ways, it does sound like a very modern idea. We're always talking about our distracted world, how quick we go from, you know, one scroll here to another scroll there on our iPhones. And in the ancient world, there were complaints about distractions, interruptions. And within Christianity, in some circles, especially elite philosophical circles, they inherited those ideas.
1: So most of our listeners probably have some idea of what a monk is, but their ancient ancestors, the desert fathers and the desert mothers, were actually quite different from modern monasticism. Could you tell us about the phenomenon of early Christian monasticism?
2: Christianity, like, say, Buddhism, has a very, has long had, since really the the, the beginnings, ascetic strand, which eventually becomes a monastic strand. Ascetic simply means... I mean, it comes from a Greek word meaning practice or habit, and it comes to take on a very particular meaning within early Christian circles of Hmm. self-discipline, disciplining the body, developing practices of meditation, prayer, fasting, and also, over time, sexual celibacy. Mm. So celibacy came to be a key part of monasticism in the ancient world. When we talk about the desert fathers and mothers, it's really a loose category that can cover a lot of different forms of early Christian monasticism. So we certainly have stories about individual Christians who decide to, in part, imitating the stories of Jesus going out into the desert— decide to leave their homes and go out into the desert to live a solitary, celibate life devoted to prayer. We have that kind of a strand of hermits. Mm -hmm. We also have, you know, both archaeological and textual evidence for the ways in which communal monasticism began Mm -hmm. in the desert. Sometimes this was at a place where there was a, you know, what we might think of as a, a famous hermit who's out there in the Mm -hmm. desert, and the crowds come to see him. And eventually, monastic settlements can grow up around that kind of charismatic, solitary figure. By the time we get to the fourth century, we are seeing the establishment of more and more communal monasteries. Sometimes they had walls around them, a fortress kind of wall. Sometimes they were far out in the desert. For example, St. Catharines in southern Sinai, they were in cities. Monasteries were built within cities. And sometimes it was more informal. For example, a someone who owned a house in a city who had decided or had chosen a monastic life would allow others to come live with them. So we know about mm. that in Bethlehem and Rome communities in homes. I'm
1: wondering if you could speak about the impulse toward monasticism. Did it arise immediately in early Christianity? Why did it come about? What's the kind of scholarly consensus about why, why monasticism within Christianity?
2: It's a good question, and, and it's a complex answer. So if we look at the very earliest communities that called themselves followers of Christ— and might still have been within Jewish synagogues, Mm -hmm. we can look at sort of the influence of Jewish practice, things like fasting, prayer, Mm -hmm. scripture. So those were inherited by these communities. Simultaneously, some of these communities, let's say in the late 1st century and into the 2nd century, even into the 3rd century, experienced bouts of persecution. Mm -hmm. And that in a way, created a kind of ethos of suffering, a kind of orientation towards the world of we are somewhat different than the rest of the world around us. Mm -hmm. And that kind of separation between us and them, and we are being persecuted, and our job is to remain steadfast, to remain faithful Mm. to the religion. So... That idea, too, comes into play with the development of monasticism because monastic practice was, in many cases, quite rigorous. Not always, but Mm -hmm. rigorous. And it was deliberately meant to be a kind of chosen suffering for the faith. There are other factors we could talk about, but I think those are some of the key ones. And, of course, the Broader Greco-Roman philosophical ideas about self-control, controlling your Mm. emotions, controlling how much you eat, controlling what you do, remaining self-controlled, come into monastic practice that it's about, in a sense, it's it's a discipline.
1: You've spent the better part of the past decade recording desert soundscapes, both in the Middle East and the American Southwest. I want to play one of those clips now. And afterwards, perhaps you and I could talk about the things we notice in the sounds and what those sounds might indicate about the nature of monastic solitude. So, Kim, tell us about this recording that we just played. When did you make it? Where did you make it? And what are some of the things that that you identify as you listen to it again?
2: Sure. You know, the surprising turns of a a research project, I never imagined that I would wind up as part of this project making field recordings. But along the Mm -hmm. way, I became really frustrated with just looking at texts and trying to Capture something of the soundscapes, even if they talk about the sounds. So I began making field recordings. What you just heard is a montage or a collage of a set of recordings that I made in the Negev desert back in 2015. Mm. They were made at different times of the day. So we begin with wind, and that was at night. It was pitch, Mm. pitch dark, listening to that sound of the wind going from fairly quiet winds to much more boisterous winds. Moving towards dawn at a spring, also in the Negev, where the birds are you know, doing their dawn song and the day is heating up, becoming more lively. And towards the end, listening to the anthropogenic sounds that come in, the hmm. jets, the trucks, the herding of sheep and goats at, mm-hmm. at a farm. So there's a lot, I think that I learned about the ancient monastic soundscape by actually listening to deserts now.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, I've been asked many times, did you make recordings because you were trying to capture exactly what the monks heard? The answer is no. What I was trying to do was to work in a kind of evocative way Can we call Mm. forth some kind of ancient, a residue of the ancient acoustic registers, even by listening today? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And what struck me is so often I would make recordings. I'd position myself in as remote a place as I could go where I thought I'd be free from all human noise, sound, and invariably things like jets would come into the recordings. And I really wrestled with that. That's one of the narratives of the book is my own coming to terms with a desire to find silent desert landscapes, because silence is something that the monks talked about so much, that quest for silence and for solitude, Mm -hmm. and constantly being thwarted. And Mm so what I discovered, I think, is I found a resonance, really, with the ancient monastic texts that talk about monks' frustration with noise. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the noise of children in a monastery. Mm. Sometimes it's the noise of an army that's passing by. These are distracting sounds, and they wrestled with that. I found myself coming back to those texts and and looking again and, and hearing more of the acoustic registers things like stories about ravens croaking and then you record those and it it at the very least it gives you a way to evoke something of the past
1: could you talk more a bit about some of those texts where sound shows up how is sound described what sorts of spiritual forces do do these different sounds evoke or, or would they have evoked for ancient monks
2: yes So one of the, what I think of as the most uh, noisy or cacophonous text that we have from the time period I was working on, so this is coming from the 4th century, about a 3rd century man named Antony from Egypt, Mm -hmm. goes off into the desert. This is a really, it's a lengthy biography. It's an ancient biography. So it's not exactly like what we would think of as a biography, but it's a biography of this man named Antony who goes off into the desert to avoid being burdened by family, society, get away from distraction, find silence, find solitude, devote himself to prayer, a hermit lifestyle. And yet, it's one of the loudest texts we have in the sense that Mm. he goes Mm. to the desert and he is in the, the the text has him living in different kinds of living situations. Sometimes he's in a ruins of an old fort. He goes farther and farther out in sequences, farther out into the remote desert. But he, he hears mobs of people, people coming to him day and night. And one of the – you asked about the spiritual dimensions. I mean, one of the key features of this text is that he hears demons. And mm-hmm. these demons – are there to tempt him, but they do things like they roar like a lion, they mm-hmm. hiss like a snake, they actually chant hymns, Christian hymns, mm. and they sing, mm. they they read scripture, they recite scripture. All so the
1: demons are, are chanting and reciting scripture and
2: okay. <laughs> yes, yes. In this yeah. story, they are doing everything they can to dissuade Antony from his quest from his monastic resolve, and crashing of thunder. That's a key image. Earthquakes, the sounds of earthquakes. So if you look at, say, sayings of the Desert Fathers, you catch little glimpses. What do you do when you hear that sparrow? Hmm. What should your response be? Or mm-hmm. when you hear the wind in the reeds? And these are texts that are post-biblical, and they inherit A lot of the images that we can see in biblical texts, for example, Mm. God's voice sounding like many waters or Mm. the crash of thunder indicating impending doom or, you know, any kind of uh, these sorts of sounds that are on the one hand environmental, but they're also meant to point to something higher.
0: We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Kim Haines in a minute. This October 17th, our Commonweal Conversations dinner event in New York is honoring Carrie Robinson of the Leadership Roundtable and Amy Goldman of the GHR Foundation with our Catholic in the Public Square Award. Come join Commonweal's editors and staff, along with hundreds of our writers, friends, readers, and fans. For ticket information, including deeply discounted tickets for readers 30 and under, visit commonwealconversations.org. That's Conversations all one word, .org.
1: Why was silence so important in ancient monasticism? You mentioned the term hesychia, which is a kind of quiet silence, but it's much more than that. Could you tell us about what kind of silence was important in ancient monasticism? Why was silence such a sought after? state or goal?
2: Over time, Christian monks and monasticism came to privilege something called an inner silence. So mm. Hezekiah, this Greek word, can mean many different things. It can mean solitude. It can mean silence. It can mean a state of tranquility or peace. And over time, it comes to mean cultivating inner silence or even mm. cultivating an inner desert. But Griffin, I'd be curious to ask you about, you, you've you spent time in monasteries and thoughts about mm-hmm. the sounds of monasteries and, and, the you know, the role of silence and solitude.
1: Yeah, I was briefly a monastic novice for a year at a place in Italy. And there it was, it was I mean, it was different. It wasn't the desert. It was an alpine landscape. So you right. had, you had em- elements of similarity. So you had rushing torrents, you had the wind in the pines, you had birdsong. But one of the things I remember most was the deep silence that came at the hermitage during winter, where there'd be like a thick blanket of snow, sometimes as much as three or four feet, you know, because you're on the top of a right. mountain and how much that would dampen every sound that you would hear. So even the bells wouldn't travel as far. And it gave a feeling of this, you know, like being calm and collected. I remember feeling that same frustration that you talked about, which is, you know, the difference between what we consider natural, the kind of pristine, uninhabited sound of a desert or a forest or a mountain, and all of this man-made noise, which is something that we tend to want to exclude or push away.
2: One of the words you used, I don't think I've I, we've we've discussed this yet, is attention. I do think, right, so much of the monastic movement was about honing a kind of attention. And I did find, you know, when I was recording, my attention would often veer from the natural sounds very quickly into those human sounds. But I think I came to realize it's a false idea that the desert is empty. Mm. We, we think mm-hmm. of deserts as places of absence. We could talk about other landscapes, other environmental habitats or contexts. But the desert is one that is uniquely, I think, in our cultural mindset, a place of absence, no life, uh, no people dead, empty. And I really came to realize that that's it's a it's a kind of false idea because you can see mm-hmm. the residues around you for one thing of past inhabitants and you find very quickly even though you think you might be in a remote spot you find very quickly others who are mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and it is it is we do still somehow distinguish between sort of anthropogenic noise and natural sounds, which are free from any human sounds. Mm. And I tried to really come to terms with nature and being not something separate, that we are yeah, in it, with it. It is with us. The desert is, it's not a place that's sort of out there, separated from us, but one in which we have always resided.
1: One of the words you bring up in your book is the term wilderness. You mentioned the Wilderness Act from yeah. the 1960s. You mention our own fascination with wilderness, because we're recording this at the end of the summer, a summer in which climate change has affected everything from Yellowstone to national parks in Utah. But there's this idea that we seem to be obsessed with, which is that Nature can exist in a pristine state apart from us, an uninhabited place. And yet we know that, I mean, mo- all of the world at this point is explored. There are very few silent places left. And I'm wondering if you could speak about the dimension of your book. You, you sort of get into this at the end. But what do you think that the, the wisdom of the ancient monks, the, their attentiveness to sound, their determination to inhabit the wilderness, what can that say to us today? especially for non-religious people even.
2: Right. Well, one of the things I think is it can help us think of the ways in which we have a mutual dependency, not just on one another, even in our quests for solitude, we return time and time again to community. And Mm. that's that's a, a lesson too that the monks had so that even a hermit would often spend part of the week in a religious community in a monastic community but also a mutual dependency between our survival and the earth's survival so mm. these desert regions and you know scientists are highlighting the ways in which deserts are expanding in our in you mm. know globally we learn from some of these texts about the fragility of life mm the challenge of life in a place with scarce resources such as water and that that could give us a needed reexamination of our use of resources and the way we mm-hmm. inhabit a place and the way we use a place and that we need a mutual kind of recognition of our role in this in in the environment and the environment's role in our lives.
1: That's one of the things we didn't touch on or haven't mentioned, which is monastic poverty, this ability to, to, in a sense, to do more with less or to, to prove that material goods do not constitute the highest good for a human being. And so I'm wondering if there's also an ancient wisdom in the use and stewardship of material resources of the natural world that we can identify in ancient monasticism.
2: So I do think there is a tension In some of these texts, between the idea that these monks are, say, dependent on a raven or a Mm. wolf who guides them, who shows them the way to water, there's a kind of image of a dependency on animals, a mutual dependency, and one one feature of some of these texts and certainly christianity more broadly in the time period was the sense that the earth was there for human humans to dominate so i think there we we don't want to miss that kind of attention that paradox for a long time historians environmental historians have argued that christianity in some ways was part of the problem with an attitude towards the earth's resources, one of domination, utility. Yeah. And I think that. And
1: ownership even. Ownership.
2: Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely.
1: Or property, like tracing the notion of property to Christianity and kind of blaming Christianity for the conception of property.
2: Right. Right. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm not fully, I'm not rejecting that that, strand is there, that we have evidence for that. And at the same time, part of what I was trying to do in the book is to resuscitate or recover something of a more nuanced relationship (laughs) between humans and the environment that we can see in some of these monastic texts.
1: I'm wondering, in, in light of the comments that you just made, if you could say a bit more about home, this idea of home, and what it meant for the ancient monks and what it could mean for us today.
2: Yes. So home, in a way, is a paradoxical idea. Because on the one hand, in these, in these monastic texts, the storyline is monks are leaving their home. They're turning their backs on relatives, family, community, and leaving their home place, their village, their city, to go out into someplace remote. And yet, simultaneously, there are these stories about how a particular monk, Anthony, or another monk, goes into the desert and finds a spring with a palm tree mm-hmm. and falls in love with the place and makes it their home. Mm-hmm. So... Right there, it returns us to this question of ownership. What does it mean to say this place is my home? This is where I Mm. belong. And I think a lot of us were asking that question during the pandemic when things really in the early stages in this country just completely shut down. It was a dramatic change. And I noticed, Mm -hmm. you know, in you know, in, in blogs and social media, people around the world noticing how quiet everything had gotten. And I it became really pronounced that things like truck traffic, traffic was really quiet. And it was happening at the same time as spring thaw and the return <coughs> of migrating birds, March into April, the frogs and the toads, and everything was really rich. And loud mm. in the environment. And it gave us a, an opportunity to see how our, our attentions, our attention span, our associations with those kinds of sounds and home, what we could uncover about those relationships when it was quieter. And it did make me think that home itself is, it has in a way embedded within it the same kind of paradox we have in desert, which is, on the one mm. hand, it is a place of safety and sim- mm. simultaneously a place of danger. It's a politically charged, it's a socially charged, economically charged idea of home that varies mm-hmm. in, in, in so many different ways for, for different people.
0: Mm.
1: Well, that's very beautiful. That's, a to me, a perfect note to end on Kim, thanks so much for joining us on the Commonweal podcast today.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat.
0: Kim Haynes-Eitzen's new book is Sonorous Desert, What Deep Listening Taught Early Christian Monks and What It Can Teach Us. It's from Princeton University Press, and it's available now. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.